1: Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where in the world you're listening to and when you're listening to this. To start this episode, I owe you all an apology. I somehow managed to go through all 30 minutes of the previous episode without calling Nepal the ceiling of the world, or the roof of the world, or using any superlative on height. So how about we start there, with the geographical landscape of landlocked Nepal. And let's talk economics and other things, not history, shall we? Before we move into this episode, I wanted to talk through a few headlines from the past few days that I think are quite interesting and just generally not Covid-related. A first is that Turkish court and the Turkish president Recep Erdogan have condoned a move to convert Istanbul's iconic Hagia Sophia from a museum to a mosque. The monument was constructed as an Orthodox Christian church 1500 years ago before the Ottoman Empire converted it into a mosque in the 15th century, and after which a secular Turkish government made it a museum in 1934. A second headline is that Poland had its second round of presidential elections between the incumbent conservative Andrea Duda and the liberal Warsaw mayor, Rafael czakowski on Sunday the 12th of July. The third is that the Dominican Republic held presidential elections on the 5th of July, with the opposition candidate Louis Abinader winning a simple majority. The fourth is that Singapore also had its general elections on the 10th of July, with the ruling People's Action Party winning elections, although their overall support seems to have dropped. And finally, bringing us quite nicely full circle, heavy rains have triggered flash floods and landslides in Nepal this past week, and have killed 40 people, along with others that are reported to be missing. On that rather upsetting note, Let's try understanding the trade and terrain of Nepal. Most of you would probably know that the highest point above sea level, Mount Everest, exists in Nepal and most of Nepal is mountainous. This predicates why it has been so difficult to invade Nepal in history and underlies why Nepal has managed to be a largely autonomous region despite the history of South Asian conflict and infiltration. The ship roughly resembles that of Portugal and it's roughly the same size of the United Kingdom. Nepal can physiogeographically be divided into three areas, the mountains, the hills and the lowland plains or the Terai region moving from north to south in the country. Within these regions, Nepal is home to five altitude dependent climate zones from the low lying tropical and subtropical region to the high altitude climate which resembles almost an Arctic ecosystem. The mountainous region of Nepal is around the border with China which makes it difficult to establish economically convenient and viable trade routes between the two countries. It's also why historically Nepal has traded a lot more with India just out of pure convenience. The mountain region is home to eight of the ten highest peaks in the world with Mount Everest, Mount Kanchenjunga, and Lahotse as the three highest peaks in the country. The Terai region forms the northern extent of the Indo-Gangetic Plain and is fed by three major rivers, and it also forms the border between India and Nepal. The hill region, which lies in the middle of the two border regions, is home to the country's capital, Kathmandu Valley, and it's the most fertile and urbanized land in the country. We'll come to Kathmandu and the central business district in a bit, but it's worth understanding how the geographic landscape plays out in terms of biodiversity and natural calamities. The Himalayan mountain range was created through the crashing between the Eurasian tectonic plain and the Indian section of the Indo-Australian plate that are still moving towards one another and into one another. This implies that Nepal is present on a massive fault line that would be incredibly prone to earthquakes. This is indeed true as along with facing severe thunderstorms and erratic rainfall it experiences the occasional earthquake with the most recent one hitting in 2015 amassing a death toll of nearly 9,000 people with a moment magnitude of 7.8 on the Richter scale and two large aftershocks. The damage estimate from that earthquake was 5 to 10 billion US dollars, which is massive considering the gross domestic product of Nepal was 21.5 billion dollars in 2015. And this resulted in a state of emergency being declared after relief efforts were underway to resurrect Nepal's economy and repair the damages. I'm going to end this section with a quick note on Nepal's biodiversity. Nepal's geography and climate profiles provide conditions that have led to a rich diversity of flora and fauna in the country. The country houses 112 forest ecosystems and 118 total identified ecosystems. Within these, it has 3.2% of the world's known flora and 1.1% of the known fauna, which is again, quite substantial considering how small the country is. These include 284 species of flowering plants, 160 animal species, and several species of bird, along with 14 species of herpetofauna that are endemic to Nepal. 55 species of wild animal and 18 species of trees found in the mountains, as well as some bird species, are among the endangered groups in the country. The birds that inhabit the tropical and subtropical and lower temperate zones are especially at risk. Funds for biodiversity, management, conservation and protections are largely provided by the government of Nepal as well as international charities. Nepal's economy is primarily agrarian, with around 30% of the land being used for agriculture and 30% being forest. This is of course dynamic considering Nepal is rapidly urbanizing and the amount of forest cover is decreasing. Since timber is a large source of fuel, there has been rapid deforestation, especially since the 1990s. Nepal's gross domestic product per capita was $3,300 at purchasing power parity, with a nominal GDP of $1,048 in 2019. Nepal has a population of over 26 million people with a median age of 24 and life expectancy around 65 years of age. This indicates that the average population age is still fairly young and this does inform the current political climate within the country, especially with the protests against the incumbent Oli government. The infant mortality rate is 44 deaths per 1,000 live births and the population comprises a diverse ethnic demography with a low literacy rate. The major languages spoken within Nepal are the two Sanskrit-derived languages, Nepali and Maithili. The religious demography comprises an 81% Hindu population, a 9% Buddhist population, a 4.5% Muslim population, with 3% of the population being Kirant and 1.5% following Christianity. There is a significant Nepalese diaspora in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Australia, the UK and India. The diaspora that works in the Middle East largely works working class and household jobs similar to other migrants from South Asia. The country also houses a large population of Indian migrants and refugees from Bhutan and Tibet. Nepal internationally is classified as a developing economy with 25% of the population living below the poverty line and remittances accounting for about 30% of their GDP. The rate of remittances especially increased after the 2015 earthquakes after which Nepal was the beneficiary of several billion dollars of international donations and charity. A few statistics that are worth bearing in mind as well is that the rate of inflation currently sits at 6.1% and the Nepali rupee is pegged against the Indian rupee. This might be a slight concern as Nepal's trade with China increases and the proportion of the yuan in the foreign exchange reserves increases, forcing Nepal to sell some of the Indian rupee it might also be beneficial to fix their currency against a more stable currency such as the yuan or leave it floating considering India's currency is also fluctuating in terms of strength and might be- might harm Nepal in the long run. The employment rate as of 2017 was 36% with 70% of the labour force being employed in the agricultural sector. The current growth rate of the economy is 7% and Nepal has a gross external debt of around 5 to 6 billion dollars As of 2017, their largest trading partner for both imports and exports was India and they majorly exported textiles and agricultural produce and imported fuel, machinery, industrial equipment, electrical goods and medicine. Of course, this is also subject to change after Nepal entered the Belt and Road Initiative Agreement with China and over time it is likely that the trade balance between Nepal and India is likely to decrease and Nepal and China is likely to increase. The current trade balance with a heavy reliance on India also underpins why the Nepali rupee is pegged against the Indian rupee. As of June 2020, $1 is worth 121 Nepali rupees. Despite their large gross external debt, Nepal have been fairly good at managing their current account and budget and they have not run into significant budget or current account deficits of late. In terms of the wage gap, the highest income, 10%, contribute 29% of the GDP while the lowest 10% contribute 3% of their GDP. The industry that contributes most towards the GDP is tourism, with increasingly large tourist populations being attracted from China. A majority of Nepal's energy production is hydroelectric, and it has the 45th worst air quality in the world with a high pollution index. But that's enough statistics and numbers. Let's try placing all of this into perspective there have been three significant phases of economic reforms that have left Nepal's economy where it is now. The first phase was between 1985 and 1990. Before 1985, most macroeconomic reforms were protectionist, isolationist, and rather inward-looking, as they tried to maximize state revenue, which led to a lack of adequate trade policy. If you remember, state revenue was directly linked to the coffers of the monarch, which meant that everything that went into the state treasury was also increasing the monarchical wealth. This also led to several short-termist ad hoc policies being implemented, like the constant revision of their industrial development policy, which led to a drop of the manufacturing sector growth. Similarly, agrarian restrictions did not allow for scalable production of crops that could be economically beneficial and stunted agricultural productivity. Examples of this were placing ceilings on the amount of land one could own, which meant that the industry did not become sufficiently large enough and did not mobilize enough such that that export was profitable enough for the country. Despite generally high tariff rates due to their protectionist measures, Nepal had also selectively low import duties on some key imports, which meant that any subsequent fiscal deficit translated into an external sector deficit owing to the centralization of the economy. This led to a foreign exchange crisis in the 1970s, further hampering Nepal's capacity to trade. Suffering from a fiscal deficit issue in the 80s meant that Nepal tried liberalizing. Despite an attempt at liberalizing, the reforms were not adequate and the autocratic rule meant that their efficacy was low due to a scope for corruption by instated officials of the monarchy. After the success of the People's Movement in 1991, the faith in industry in Nepal improved and invited the development and growth of a private sector in the country, along with high rates of foreign direct investment. The Kingdom of Nepal's economic plans are numbered as the first economic plan, second economic plan, etc. And the eighth economic plan, which was triggered in the 1990s, is particularly worth noting, as it sets sustainable development goals for the economy to work towards and try to achieve a along with an increase in the number of donors and increasing open borders. This meant there was a spike in Nepal's growth after their democratization. An economic stabilization program that had been put into effect in the late 80s saw a decrease in the fiscal deficit and an improving in their foreign exchange rate. Further, there was a revision in their tariff policy and a revamping of tax administration, which facilitated the increase in economic growth. The Privatization Act was signed in 1994, and by 1997, 17 public enterprises had been privatized. The problem was that privatization led to the loss of some jobs and did not improve the efficiency and economic returns to the projected extent, and after 2002, the rate of privatization in Nepal decreased. While these privatization policies were a step in the direction of growth for Nepal, subsequent political instability meant that the full potential of these reforms has still not been realized, especially due to the protests and labor union strikes around 2006. This also contributed to the Maoist faction of the Communist Party's movement that has currently led to their reign in the country. There are fiscal federal reforms in progress that are trying to increase the transfer of resources and administrative capacity of local governments. The 2019 National Work Plan has seen an increase in private investment into the economy and the government has plans underway to cut the fiscal deficit by improving tax mobilisation and administration. Further, there are reforms to help increase the export and support local production such that they can substitute imported produce. Nepal does have a significant migrant population in both India and China. These in particular provide significant remittances to the country. Of course, this too is a tenuous source of income should international animosity worsen, especially between India and Nepal in light of the Kalapani region and Nepal's favouring of China currently. Perhaps the biggest challenge in Nepal's economy is their reliance on agriculture, despite fairly erratic weather such as monsoons. This often leads to crop reductions and the government is actively trying to improve institutional frameworks to increase their resilience to climate shocks. The most recent example of this was of course the heavy rains in the past week that led to flash floods and a massive destruction of cropland as well. Considering Nepal and China's allyship in the Belt and Road Initiative and China's development of 5G networks, The provision of these networks for Nepal would be hugely beneficial in data management and increasing the efficacy of the switch to a federal government structure. There has been an increase in the public and private data gathering and statistical agencies within Nepal, and these are helping develop sustainable growth goals and models and indicating areas that need addressing within the federal structure by assaying the needs of central and state governments. An investment summit in 2019 saw active participation by China Picking up most of the development projects in Nepal. Of course, of the proposed development projects, most were not picked up, but of those that were picked up, a significant chunk went to China and independent private contractors that operate within Nepal. These include deals to help improve the energy sector and the development of special economic zones through public-private partnerships in addition to signing a new transport and transit treaty with China to improve trade links and trade routes. The trend, therefore, is broadly leaning on a decrease in the dependence on India and the formation of closer economic ties with China and the Belt and Road Initiative. Should Nepal not default on their loans through the BRI, it is projected to be a significant benefit to Nepal's economy and open the Nepalese economy up to trade, especially north into Asia. Honestly, at this point, I cannot be bothered talking about COVID-19 as it's probably the only thing that's covered in the news. but. It's worth mentioning that Nepal has around 15,000 reported cases, with under 50 reported deaths, and it's extended its lockdown until the 22nd of July. Nepal has increased the amount of testing, but the local population is fairly agitated that the government's response has been inadequate, lackadaisical, and not nearly rapid enough to tackle the pandemic. Nepal's pharmaceutical industry has been impacted heavily as one of Nepal's largest imports is medicine and this puts them at high risk due to the cessation of most shipping and cross-border trade. It's also worse considering India is becoming increasingly averse to trading with Nepal and a large chunk of the medical resources come from India. With this, I come to the end of another incredibly brief overview on the geography and economic trends of the country of Nepal. After the 2015 and 2016 reforms, the recently inaugurated federal form of governance is probably going to change the economic and administrative landscape of Nepal and hopefully stimulate economic development in the country over the coming few years. So thank you once again for joining me. This has been the Trade and Terrain of Nepal.
0: Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.